0: Hello, sci-fi and fantasy fans, and welcome to episode two of Brandon Yinkit Bowie's Karma of the Sun. I'm Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. If you find yourself loving this book as much as we do, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway this week where one lucky winner will receive the full audiobook of Karma of the Sun for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry, so make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! Previously, on Karma of the Sun, young Karma has made the difficult decision to leave his mother and the relative safety of their village. He knows the answer to his father's disappearance is out there, and, if the minister is to be believed, finding the mountain is the only way he can help his village and exonerate his father. But soon he will learn that nothing is what it seems.
1: 8. THE BASIN Later that day, the village marches Karma out in a procession to the prayer flags. His uncle leads the people as if he were a captain of one of the Lord Minister's troops himself but once they see the expedition's soldiers at the flagstaff of the iron wreckage, they halt in a quiet cluster. His mother's tears, the clapping of the prayer flags with the animals of the four dignities surrounding a faded but flaming jewel, the white Kadog scarf his mother puts around his neck, pressing her forehead against his, whispering blessings and good luck. It all seems like a memory of his father's departure in the very same place, so that he almost finds himself looking for his younger self in the spot where he had hidden ten years ago. When the stupa sinks into the distance, along with his mother's figure and outstretched hand, he imagines his father looking back at the same scene of unfettered hills and far-reaching sky, a trail of horses carrying the army's expedition due west. Now, the terrain begins to rise, the yellow grasslands breaking into small, rocky outcroppings, The gradual lift would seem to mirror karma's rising hopes, were it not tempered by the rifts in the ground from earthquake damage, a sobering reminder of the dangers that may lie ahead. Their plan is to recreate his father's journey, to head west, and then wherever karma will take them, guided by the horns that his father spoke about, but the sounds of which karma has not heard in years. Perhaps soon, perhaps when I am at the borderlands. For now, he can only wait and hope. The men of the expedition, around two dozen of them on horseback, regard him without words. They are disguised as ordinary nomads so as not to draw attention should they encounter anyone. But all are inconspicuously armed. They bring with them many pack horses carrying supplies. This will be a journey of weeks, if not months. After many hours, their route takes them toward what looks like a shimmering lake in the distance, but the captain assures them that it is just an illusion. The body of water is dry, he says, having long since been drained by the quakes, leaving this after image, like some ghost of what was once there. The expedition's captain calls it the skeleton's head because the shape is that of a skull. By evening, they reach the outermost boundary of the valley. The skeleton head is inverted from their eastern approach. On the horizon waits a low wall of cliffs separating the territories under the minister's control from the borderlands beyond. The red glow of the setting sun peaks here and there from clouds that have amassed. It bleeds through the hint of gorges and gullies, but otherwise the rock face is dark, vacant. The seeping colors make the basin look like it is stained with blood. The soldiers immediately bustle about, pitching tents, watering and grazing the horses, preparing the evening victuals. They move without instructions or orders, with a practice rote and speed of men accustomed to repetition of these tasks. As they mill about, Karma feels out of place, conspicuously idle, sheepish too, at the thought that he is somehow supposed to be their guide to the mountain. Until he can hear the horn, he will feel useless. Two of the patroller soldiers huddle over the implements of a fire, bickering quietly. They are brothers from what Karma has been able to glean, and only a few years older than he is. He is within earshot of the brothers when they notice him watching them and their bantering stops. The older one, odzel gives him the once-over, a hint of suspicion in his eyes. Something you need, comrade, he says, using the formal, though less deferential, form of address. Karma offers what he hopes is an affable smile, He doesn't want to appear to be eavesdropping. These men are going to be his travel companions, his escorts. They will be journeying together for what might be a long time to find this mountain. He knows he is an outsider still, but he will be one of them, a group he has long feared because of their mercilessness in enforcing the minister's law. How strange, but perhaps he has misjudged them, the minister's patrollers. Perhaps soon they will be his friends. Not at all, Karma replies. I just wanted to offer my help. At his reply, the elder gives a snort of derision at his younger brother. Hear that, Jonang? Even the Sherpa boy is getting tired of watching you bumbling around with that tinder. The younger brother shoots both Atsil and Karma a look of challenge, eyes flicking back and forth between them, as if trying to figure out who has insulted him the most. Otzel jerks his head toward a gray gathering of clouds beyond the distant elevations. Storm clouds seep down, smoky and opaque. The winds are blowing hard now in long, cold gusts. If you don't get that fire going before the storm, it'll be you explaining to the captain why we're having dried Sampa for dinner, not me. Jonang's face twists into a deeper scowl. For a moment, the two brothers seem to have forgotten karma. Trying to diffuse the tension... Karma makes a show of shifting his attention toward the cliffs. Do you know much about the borderlands? Karma asks. Their attention returns to him. Karma senses their distrust. Probably understandable, being on constant guard for spies. Either that or they take his question as a kind of provocation. I just mean, I've never been this far from home myself, Karma adds quickly. The mention of home suddenly bringing an involuntary pang of homesickness. Odsel's eyebrows rise in curiosity. Yet, here you are. Karma realizes that his declaration could be interpreted as boastfulness, like he was somehow special. He has to be careful to remember that there could be envy or resentment by the others at the attention the minister bestowed on him and his family. Gifts, a new horse, food for his village guards to protect the villagers. These soldiers undoubtedly received no such exchange when they joined the Eastern Army. They have come from other villages elsewhere in the four rivers and six ranges, drafted into the patroller ranks. What makes him so special? Before Karma can say anything else, Odsil imparts another reply. Let me give you a piece of advice, Sherpa. Forget about home. You won't be seeing it for a very long time, if ever again, but don't worry. The minister's guards promise that they will keep a close eye on the village, night and day. There won't be a single soul that will come or go without their knowing. At these words, the brothers exchange a strange, knowing look, and for some reason, karma feels uneasy. A sudden gust of wind rushes through, strewing about the embers of the tinder fire that Janang had been toiling over. The younger brother lets loose a chain of curses, The damn wind in this damn valley. Otzel slaps the back of Jonang's head. It's not the wind, you ignoramus. It's your useless fire. If you'd gone and gotten the bags to build a barrier like I told you, you wouldn't have wasted all this time. For a moment, Karma has the impression that the wind is alive, as if it was not just the current that carried the ghostly voices, but the ghosts themselves that blew through the fire. He sees Jonang swivel to face his brother, ready for a fight. I'll get them, Karma rushes to volunteer, in part trying to quell the conflict, in part feeling like he's had enough of the brother's company. It's no concern, really. He gives what he hopes is a nonchalant shrug and turns to go. Jonang's glower and Otsil's searching stare at his back. Their retorts fade in the growing wind. It is getting dark and it will not be long before the refrain of ghost winds rises in full measure. Karma pulls his mother's scarf higher around his neck, shielding his face from the dust. Reaching the pack horses, he picks two bags. One clinks with the weight of the soldier's armor, hidden within bundles inside. The other feels like furs for bedding. He totters with them back to the fire. Only Chanong is there, having regathered the kindling. Just leave them, he grunts without bothering to look up. The sun is almost completely obscured behind the walls of the distant cliffs as Karma goes back to the pack horses for more bags. Meanwhile, storm clouds have gathered in the east. The sudden rages of weather have worsened in the past year. During spring, the winds blew the village's calabash seeds right out of the soil and they had to gather them back up for replanting. And then... When the long melons finally began to grow, another windstorm tore the young gourds off their vines. The rest were killed in the frost that followed. The minister was right. The weather was raging. Another sign of the seventh sun's approach, so they said. The silhouettes of the tents make Karma think of evening in the village. He imagines his mother alone in the gloaming of the darkened house, the sound of the ghosts already filling the room. A hollow feeling comes over him, and once again he feels the stab of homesickness. He's not sure if it's the dust or the image, but in spite of himself, his eyes begin to well. The wind whips at his face, as if to slap him out of it. Karma blinks behind the strands of his hair, feeling embarrassed. Surely his father was not so easily distracted. He takes a breath of resolve, wiping his eyes as he bends to lift more bags. Back and forth, he fetches the saddlebags. As the wind barrier rises, so do the flames. Soon a fire, white and spindly, licks into the blustery night. But the weather is also worsening quickly, the air getting colder. As Karma returns with another bag over his shoulder, a particularly strong gust unbalances him and he drops the sack, spilling its contents. Clothing strews about, a tunic, a shirt, a pair of trousers, a necklace on a string. Fearing the wind will scatter them, Karma rushes to retrieve the items, scooping them back into the bag. Amber beads, orange coral. The sight of the object in his hand jars him. Familiar, yet somehow incongruous in its appearance in the patroller's bags. I know this necklace. And then the moment of recognition. This is Lobsang's the one Uncle Ugin gave him on the day of the fortune. His mind goes back to the moment he and his little cousin found the dead calf. He remembers the necklace around Lobsang's neck, so long that it dangled below the boy's belt, tangling in his arm as he shielded his mouth and nose from the foul odor of the dead calf. Karma's eyes dropped to the bag. It is as if a cold wind has breezed over his body, standing his hairs on end at what else he now sees. Masks, leather visors, the kind worn by riders to protect their faces against sun and wind and sand, the kind worn by bandits. Karma's mind comes to a halt under the onslaught of revelations, to the cumulative realization that something is not right. A whiff of cooking meat floats on the wind, dinner, and he feels suddenly sickened. He tries to tell himself that there must be a good reason that the soldiers merely found these things, but the nausea that follows tells him instinctively otherwise. Fragments of the soldiers' voices echo over the wind, making him jump. He shifts his eyes from the belongings to the direction of the campfire. In the haze of the wind, in the smoke and dusk, the soldiers look as if they could be anybody. Nomads, monks, traders, bandits. Everything inside him goes cold, though it has nothing to do with the growing chill of the night, but from knowing that he has been deceived. The soldiers are not the saviors they purported to be, the story of their rescue of Lapsang, not true. And if they were capable of lying, of staging a raid, if they could commit such a cruelty as to injure a child as a ploy to convince the village, what other atrocity might they subject them to? Karma backs away from the sack. He wants to run, to go back to warn the villagers. But how? What is his plan? He glances toward the shadows created by the fire. He'd never reach his horse, not while the soldiers are around. The pack horses, then. Unattended, left for last. Not as ideal as a black Amduan stallion gifted from Hanumantha, but his only option to flee. Karma starts for the animals, reaching the one he just unloaded. There's no saddle, only a halter and a lead, but there's no time to choose. He trembles in the chill of the ghost winds. Doubt fights against action. His absence will quickly be discovered, but he has to try. He has to warn them, especially since the village is being guarded by soldiers oblivious to the deception because of me, because of the deal he made, his service in exchange for the protection of the village. He reaches for the horse's lead. Don't. The patroller captain steps forward and Karma's heart stops. The captain studies him. Slowly, he holds out his hand for the rope. Trembling, Karma gives it to him. Don't trouble yourself, the captain says. The men will take care of it. Immediately, several of the patrollers converge on the pack horses, starting to unload the rest of the bags, leading the horses away. Karma blinks. They are just here for the bags, coming to tend the pack horses. He breathes out a shaky, quivering sigh of relief. But then he sees one of the patrollers moving toward a sack on the ground, the one he dropped, within steps of coming upon it. Relief turns back to panic. In his haste to escape, he left the bag out in the open. Thinking quickly, Karma starts toward the fallen pack, I don't mind at all, he says over his shoulder, as if in reply to the captain. We were just using the bags to build a barrier against the wind. I'll just run this last one back. He rushes past the patroller just in time to snatch up the spilled contents. The stones in Lobsong's necklace feel like polished teeth. And Karma crams the necklace into the sack, cinching the bag shut before the patroller can see what fell out. Sherpa, the captain calls. Karma hesitates. His heart is pounding in his chest. The footfalls of the captain's steps follow. Slowly, Karma turns. Even in the dark, the captain's presence is dominating, his eyes watchful. A caution, the captain says. The Borderlands are a dangerous place. Bandits, outlaws, rebel warlords, restless ghosts, and the vengeful damned. He lowers his voice. You'd do well. Not to go wandering off. Remember that out here, anything can happen. Your only promise of protection is us. Lightning shimmers over the horizon. The distant sky emits a low rumble. Fragments of ice begin to rain down, tiny crystals pecking Karma's face. The air has the hardness of stone and bitterness of iron. A storm's coming. The captain remarks ominously as he heads back toward the tents. You men, tie up the horses, he orders. Some spook more easily than others. Once again, Karma is left on his own. But this time there's no thought of escape. There's no chance of it. Not with the approaching storm and the blindness of night. And not under the watchful eye of the patrollers. Karma is powerless to do anything about it now. His insides grow sick at the realization. The ghost winds lash again, and in the howl, the billows whip and the scarf karma's mother has given him suddenly rips away from his neck. He tries to grasp it, to claw it back from the night, but in an instant it is gone, leaving his skin naked, his throat bare against the cold and darkened world. 9. The Bandits Daybreak and Karma moves like the walking dead, riding on his horse. He has not slept. How could he, knowing the truth about the guards watching his village? Throughout the night, he longed to sneak away. He imagined stealing a horse and riding to the valley to warn them, but now he begins to worry that even if he could make it home, it would accomplish nothing if he returned without the seeing stone. They would only force him to go back, this time under compulsion erasing any pretense that the villagers were anything but hostages. And what about his father? The minister lied. He used stratagem to trick Karma into fearing that there would be no other choice. What else then might he have lied about? Could he even trust what Hunnamantha said about his father? I believe that this stone was the answer the patrol was searching for and found. Karma wants to believe this, but can he now? Find the stone, and not only will you redeem your father's name, but perhaps you shall also see him again. Why would the minister send karma on the search if it was untrue? The dilemma looms before karma now. In his heart, he does not want to give up the search for his father. More than anything else, he longs to see him again, even if it is for one last time but he can't just abandon his mother, his cousin, his aunt and his uncle, his whole village either, knowing the truth of the minister's subterfuge, especially knowing that his own father has been accused of leaving them just the same 10 years ago. What would happen if Lapsang awoke with a memory and told the village? The patrollers are known to be ruthless if they as much as suspect insurrection. Karma makes a decision then. He will go back to the valley first, He will warn the village, come whatever blame his uncle Ugen is sure to lay on him, but then he will come up with a plan. He will sneak away and resume his search for the stone and his father. The horse snorts, flaring its nostrils in irritation, as if sensing the competing fears in Karma's mind. Already the air is stifling, the winds are gone, replaced by the heat that hangs over them. Today, the horse that the minister calls the black moon of Amdo when he gave it to Karma is more like a black cloud. It's courtly bearing the day before, replaced by stormy tenseness. It hesitates at Karma's half-hearted signals, eyes darting to the others, tail swishing with suspicious flicks. This is a horse used to a leader's direction, unaccustomed to following from behind. In the afternoon, they reach the bottom of the skeleton head's basin, a narrow gullet entering through the cliffs. Inside the gorge, the passage of rock is striated, alternating between shimmering colors and pockmarked shadows, hinting at a deeper maze of hollows. The captain never takes his attention away from the canyon walls, with its holes looking like large eyes, watching them back. By evening's onset, they've climbed out of the gully into elevated land, and the horses seem more relaxed, less jumpy birds the color of brass swirl through the sky, disappearing into the western sun like sparks from a fire under daylight. You don't see a sight like this every day, comes the captain's voice to Karma. Karma must appear to be homesick from how quiet he has been, avoiding all conversation, speaking only when spoken to and merely in single words. The truth is that he is afraid that he will be unable to hide his knowledge of the truth, as well as his contempt for those who deceived him. Where the valley ends, the borderlands begin. Bandit country from here on out, as far as the wastelands. The captain continues. He is referring to the border bandits, scourge of the four rivers and six ranges. Tribesmen and nomads turn raiders for survival. Deserters and herders forced off their settlements in the territories for failure to pay tribute Now, banded together to live by robbing travelers and refugees, we had an understanding. Each of us was to stay on our own side of the cliffs, the Eastern Army to the territories, the Border Bandits to the Borderlands. But all that is going to change soon. The Lord Minister is gathering his army, like the prophecy says. Once he finds the Lama Child and you find the Seeing Stone, we will go west to the mountain. The expedition suddenly slows, the soldier in the lead pointing to something on the ground. The captain eases his horse forward to take a look. When Karma's horse joins from the rear, he sees a column of tracks parallel to their course, a sign of recent travel through the area. Are there border bandits, sir? The patroller brother Odzel asks. They scan the rise ahead to the crest of a tall ridge. A small mound has been erected. Silhouetted against the white sky, it is a cairn, a memorial of stones shaped into a pyramid. From the top, a streamer flutters, almost invisible. They nose their horses up the ridge to investigate further. Around the edifice, they find fresh signs of circumambulation around the edifice. The tracks suggest it was a sizable group. Not bandits, the captain concludes as he scrutinizes the trail more likely outlaw refugees of some sort, trying to go west. A caravan of around 50 people from the looks of it, most on foot, some with carts and animals too. Jonang retrieves one of the stones from the cairn, a flat gray disc with an inscription on the surface, and gives it to the captain. Om Mani padme hum, the captain reads. Behold, the jewel in the lotus. From the ridgetop he surveys the land, The soldiers follow the captain's gaze. In the distance, at the base of a wooded spur running down from a hill below a bluff, they spot them. They're monks. Odzil and Junang recognize the group at the same time. Even at this distance, their maroon-colored robes are distinct to Karma, who recognizes the clothing as those worn by travelers who pass through his own village from time to time, collecting alms. But those other holy men are sanctioned by the minister often traveling with patroller soldiers. Shall we detain them for questioning, sir? Jonang inquires of the captain. If they're monks, they may know something about the whereabouts of the lama child. The captain tosses the rock to the ground. True, but these are pilgrims, not outlaws. Detaining them would do no good. We'll talk to them disguised as fellow travelers instead. He jerks his chin to the group toward an area below the ridge, Leave your weapons with the packhorses. But then he points to Odsul and Janang. You two stay behind with the supplies. The brothers look as if they are about to protest, but think better of it. The captain nods at Karma. You'll be coming with us, Sherpa, but remember what I said. Stay close. Should any of them try to speak to you, tell them nothing. Trust no one. The soldiers mobilize. From the rear of the group, Karma's warhorse strains on its bit as if sensing imminent action. They move out, their hoofbeats rattling off the landforms as they stream down the slope. The tops of the trees are lit with the late sun, its rays scattered over the ridge ahead. The monk's caravan appears suddenly. The feeling of foreboding, of impending disaster that has become all too familiar of late comes over Karma. He sees the monk's heads turning, faces animated, maroon cloaks, Frozen like a group of startled sheep. And then, just like sheep, they scatter, dispersing in every direction, some fleeing from where they stand, some running to their handcarts. The captain swerves his horse, apparently scuttling his original plan of approach. Fan out, he shouts to the patrollers, swearing. Cut them off before we lose them. The formation of soldiers instantaneously spreads out. The patrollers veer on the trail of fleeing monks preparing to head them off, but there is something about the way the monks are fleeing, something that Karma only now notices. To the left, to the right, toward us, as if they are not fleeing the soldiers, but something else. A rider besides Karma swerves dangerously close, threatening to collide into him. Instinctively, Karma jerks his reins away, but he is going too fast, much faster than he has ever gone. Still unaccustomed to the horse, to its quickness and its power, he feels himself suddenly slipping, sliding from the saddle, the momentum of his body going in one direction, the horse in another. He tries to lean into the turn to hold on, but he falls and finds himself on the ground beneath bulging musculature and circling hooves. Motion seems suspended. His sight dims. He can see the horse's veins throbbing, the flying of earth. Though he has fallen, somehow he is still moving, still speeding along. It is his foot, he realizes, caught in the stirrup, which is lodged around his ankle. Karma kicks. Miraculously, his foot comes free. He tumbles, rolling to a stop. For a moment, he is immobile, all control of his extremities lost. The only feeling, a lingering sense of moving, of earth gliding beneath his body. No pain, but no other sensation either. He blinks, once, twice. Nothing. I can't feel anything. Panic floods him. He strains to lift his head. A tingle of feedback twitches in his neck. Slowly, thankfully, he rises from the ground. I can move. He looks ahead in a daze. His horse is nowhere in sight. The other patrollers have continued as well, spread out, oblivious to his fall, chasing after the scattering monks. A pilgrim nun with gray hair lags behind, clutching something as she flees into the woods. A shrill whoop rings through the air, immediately answered by hoots from the surrounding forests. Karma turns cold at the sound. It is one his people have come to fear. And then he understands the reason for the seemingly illogical direction of the monk's flight. They are not running from the patrollers in their nomad disguises. They are running from the border bandits. The surrounding forests stir with the twang of bows and flitter of arrows. The fleeing monks cry out. Bodies tumble, handcarts turn over. All at once, there is mayhem. A swarm of bandits suddenly streams from the woods. The patroller captain is shouting, his voice sharp. He swivels back and forth on his horse. Fall back! The captain screams, his arm waving empty-handed as Karma remembers that the patrollers are unarmed. Retreat to the ridge! An arrow streaks through the air. One moment, the captain's mouth is moving. The next, it stops, skewered open with an arrow. His face goes still, eyes wide and searching. Then another arrow lands, thumping into his chest. The horse sidesteps, an effort to keep him astride. But finally, the captain falls. Karma stares. At the sight of their captain, the other patrollers panic, circling, turning their horses to retreat. More arrows zip across the clearing. One by one, the soldiers drop from their horses. A massacre. Snapping out of it, Karma runs toward the woods, trampling into the foliage, hemlock bristles, heads of casilla swoop. Karma ducks, hurling himself blindly deeper into the tangle. The shadow of fleeing monks flit helter-skelter. The patrollers, dead. We rode into an ambush. A blur of a figure in maroon clothing and gray hair darts out from behind a pine. Karma swerves, but he is running too fast and the ground is too uneven. They collide, careening down a bank of the forest floor. He comes face to face with the same gray-haired nun he observed a moment ago, a bundled object still in her arms, cradled against her body. For a moment, neither move, staring at each other. But then the forest fills with the shouts of men, footsteps pounding, voices shouting. The nun scrambles to her feet. She whirls around just in time to face a masked bandit who jumps out, blocking her path. Shrinking back, she swivels in the opposite direction, but that way is barred by another. Still, a third bandit bounds out from the periphery. A fourth comes into view, now completely cutting off her escape. She is surrounded, and Karma with her. The fourth bandit's face, the only one not wearing a mask, is covered with red grease. He tilts his head toward the object in her arms. What is that you have there, old woman? The nun hugs the bundle close. We're pilgrims. We have no possessions of value. Oh, the red-faced bandit replies. Then you won't mind if he takes a look. One of the other bandits strides forward to grab hold of the object in her arms. The nun pulls away. The bundle's covering unravels. There's a sound of something tearing. A book tumbles to the ground, pages scattering. The bandit backhands her across the face, and the nun gives out a stunned cry as she falls to the ground. He retrieves the book, handing it over to the red-faced bandit, who is apparently the chief among them. He studies the pages. These are maps, he says. Where do they lead? The nun's lip is bleeding. She is shaking. When she doesn't answer, the bandit chieftain starts toward her. Frantically, she begins to slide away until she is behind Karma. The bandit chieftain turns his attention to Karma, his brutal face managing an expression of curiosity at this person who's clearly not one of the pilgrims. And who are you? Karma does not reply because he is too afraid. He does not move because there is nowhere to go, nowhere to run. As the bandit chieftain takes another step forward, Karma thinks suddenly of the knife the minister gave him. Karma has never wielded a weapon before, never held an object to fight or to maim another person, but there is no choice. He thrusts his hand into his robe, grasping the handle. He draws it out, tugging on the silver sheath. Stuck. The blade lodged inside the sheath does not come out. Karma glances down. The scabbard has been damaged, dented somehow at the throat, probably when he fell from the horse. He tries once more, tugging on the handle as hard as he can. Still no use. The bandits begin to snicker. A slow, vicious smile grows on the chieftain's face. A stone axe slips into his hand by his leg. Karma feels his insides grow weak, bracing himself, still clutching the undrawn knife like a child wielding a stick. The chieftain raises the weapon. A sudden crackle of rifle fire pulls their attention away. The chieftain's smile vanishes. The bandits exchange glances with one another. Ganduk outlaws, Dragpa, asks one of them. More rifle shots carry through the forest, followed by shouting. The chieftain's mouth contorts into a scowl. Take the book, he barks. Glancing to Karma and the nun, he adds, Bring them with us. The bandits start forward. No. Karma acts, making a grab for the chieftain's axe. He has the upper hand at first, but in the next moment, his palm is empty, the bandit chieftain wrestling it out of Karma's grip. What comes next takes only an instant, but Karma can see it happening, sees the stone axe head arcing toward him before he can fully duck or raise his hands to protect himself. His vision flashes, a rupture of light and pain to his head. He stumbles back. Earth tilts, Forest dims. Somewhere very far away, the nun is shrieking. The world begins to turn. Like a stone, Karma drops, with the sensation of plummeting into a hole. He feels the darkness closing in, feels the velocity of his body's fall. A world
0: of blackness unfolds.
1: 10. The Nun Karma stands on a broad thoroughfare. The ground under his feet is hard as stone, but it is neither rock nor mortar. It is completely uniform, a single endless stretch without breaks or variation or any seams, going as far as the eye can see. Something large hurtles by, startling him, soundless as a breeze but extraordinarily fast, gleaming. Another passes him, going in the other direction, more follow, whizzing by on wheels, without noise, without effort, as if whisked on the very wind itself. He begins to realize that these are vehicles, like wagons, with people inside them, pale, unseeing faces. They do not look at him. It is as if he is invisible. He darts to the edge of the thoroughfare and looks off to the side. A bank of towers looms before him. They rise, seemingly endless in height, gleaming pillars in the sun like crystal stupas piercing the very heavens. Karma looks up in awe. These translucent structures are not made of the stone of the earth, but of iron, also glass. He can make out figures inside, more white faces. The people are dressed in strange clothing as form-fitting as a second skin. Behind the windowed walls, They look like bodies trapped under the ice of a frozen lake. As he stands amid the scene, he begins to hear a distant noise, a growl. He turns in its direction. Somehow, his eyes zoom closer. He sees a large tiger, striped in yellow, which he recognizes as the second of the four dignities. It crouches in the middle of the road. A whirling vehicle courses into its path, sounding a warning blare. The tiger roars in return. It snatches the vehicle in its jaws, crushing its iron shell. Then it slams the wreckage to the ground, flinging its occupants into the swerving onslaught of other wagons. This must be a dream. I am only dreaming. The tiger turns its head toward Karma as if hearing his thoughts. Its mouth opens, bearing fangs, and Karma feels his certainty fleeing. The throaty rumble of its growl thunders forth, It is a violent sound, rupturing the smooth thoroughfare in a shattering of cracks up to the buildings, splintering windows, splitting metal. Wagons careen to avoid the shower of glass, crashing into one another. The tiger roars a second time, and this time the sound peals through the air with the crack of lightning, bolts sizzling across the skies and setting the lofty rooftops on fire. A third roar, and the ground ruptures. Springs of floodwater course through the thoroughfare, washing away the people as they run from their vehicles. A fourth roar brings thunder and a deluge of rain. A fifth roar comes like the blast of a furnace, a wave of heat evaporating the water into burning steam that melts the skin of every person, sapping even the color of the land to bone-white dust. It roars a sixth time, and this final burst is like the gust of a violent wind, stripping away the buildings like leaves from a stalk. Then the buildings disintegrate, tumbling, darkening the sky, shadowing the earth, filling the air with a flock of falling bodies. Karma lurches awake at the bump of a wheel, the rattle of a cart. Darkness surrounds him. The dusty blackness of the night sky and the half wheel of the waxing moon hangs low. Dull throbbing. Movement sends a swirl of pain and faintness through his head. He can sense that he is moving, but where is he? Where is he going? A shadow appears by his side. Karma sees a gleam of silver hair. hears a swoosh of monk's robes. Flashes from his memory emerge. Horses, arrows, bloodshed. A stone axe raised to strike. He jolts upright in a panic. A hand reaches for him, the shadow's silhouette leans forward, whispers into his ear. You're safe, a woman's voice. Be still. Karma blinks up at the shadow. Her figure moves beside the cart, leaning into it to help him. White hair gleams in the moonlight. It is the nun from the forest. Don't be afraid, she whispers, easing him back down. His head feels inordinately heavy, like an unwieldy stone. It throbs as it touches back onto the hard floor of the wagon. She walks alongside, keeping pace. The Chushi Gangdruk found us. You've heard of the outlaws who help refugees cross the borderlands? He has. They are a legend in the valley. To some, they are saviors, fighters that help the helpless. To the Eastern Army, they're like any other outlaw gang worthy of death for insurrection and breaking the peace. There are escorts through the borderlands, the nun says. We were waiting for them when the border bandits attacked. The cart jounces again, and the bump sends pain rippling through Karma's skull. He winces, a hand to his forehead. The nun's voice is empathetic. You took a hard blow. Karma remembers, a red face a bandit chieftain named Drakpa. Karma tried to snatch his weapon. A blinding blow followed. Luckily, not an axe of iron, and only a glancing blow as they struggled, but enough to knock him out. That was the last thing he remembered. But isn't there something else? Fire. Roads breaking. Buildings burning. People falling from the skies. Six blasts, Karma mumbles to himself. In and out of consciousness, the images slip. The memory is just a dream. You were dreaming of the suns, weren't you? Asks the nun. Around them is the quiet jangling of stirrups, the steady march of footfalls. You were talking in your sleep, she says. Karma moves his head to shake off the grogginess. He feels naked, vulnerable, and self-conscious. Unsteadily, yet deliberately, he reaches a hand for the edge of the cart. Once more, she gently stops him. Where am I? He says. You're traveling west with the monks of the oracle. Karma processes the words. West. Farther from the valley. The wrong direction. No, Karma replies. I I have to go back. Once more, he tries to sit up. Once again, the nun reaches out to steady him. But this time, she doesn't try to hold him back. She doesn't need to. Karma sags against the cart under the weight of his own body. You're injured, the nun says. What you need is to rest. Uh, I've got to warn them, Karma mumbles. I'm sorry to tell you, she says. But your comrades did not survive. What, Karma says. The others you were with, the patrollers. Slowly, Karma understands. Despite the disguises, she guessed who the patrollers were, and now she must assume that Karma is one of them. He tries to read her face, but her features are indiscernible in the dark. The bandits killed your fellow soldiers, she says, just like they killed many of my own people. Her voice quivers. Just as they killed our oracle. She composes herself, steadying her voice. But you needn't worry. We've said nothing to the Gangdruk. We've clothed you in monk's robes, and they will not suspect a thing. Karma touches the clothing, his fingers confirming that the loomed wool of his coat has indeed been replaced with a rougher, unfamiliar fabric. His gaze returns to her. Why are you helping me? He asks. A kindness for a kindness, the nun replies. What the bandits took was something very valuable, but had you not intervened, they might have taken my life too. I couldn't in good conscience leave you behind. Karma recalls the knife. He moves his hand to his inside pocket where it should be, but of course it is not there. He dropped it in the fight, the useless weapon now left behind. My name is Reverend Mother Dorje. I keep the history of the monks of the oracle, what's left of it that we know at least. The book they took was written by the oracle's own hand, containing every revelation he had come to discover about the location of the llama child. The llama. So the patroller's instinct to question the monks was not misplaced. Have their paths fortuitously crossed to join on the same journey? No, he decides. He is looking for the seeing stone. The rest of the prophecy is something he does not even understand. In any case, he already decided that he must go back to the village first. At present, however, he has little choice. His head is beginning to spin again, a sign that his strength is waning. Thank you, Reverend Mother, he manages to say, addressing her as best he knows. But rest now, patroller. The nun says, We'll speak more later. Karma, he replies, My name. The Reverend Mother's voice lifts with a sad smile. And so it should be, she says, As it is karma, after all, that we should meet. 11. The Burial. In the morning, The Ganduk escorts stop at a field of wild buckwheat. Filaments from the forest's cotton trees float in the sun. The outlaw at the head of the caravan is a man named Sir Kang. Like the other Chushi Ganduk, instead of yak wool, he is dressed in skins. The fur side turned in the way of the nomads. His cap is the nomad style too. But Sir Kang also wears an ensemble of mismatched adornments. Bone beads, poorly painted to look like expensive shells in glass. A bright feather missing its top. An array of brass buckles, polished but fastened without any discernible function. Over the shirt is the trophy, a chainmail hauberk, ill-fitting and with missing links, undoubtedly taken from some captured soldier, girdled in place by a fraying strip of tiger skin that looks at once too tight and too short. Karma feels a sense of unease when Dorje and several other monks make their way toward the outlaw. As they speak to Sir Kong, two carts trundle up to the clearing from the rear. They hold the bodies of the dead. Some agreement is reached. At an open patch of rock, the pilgrims assemble a cauldron, and array of tools. Picking through the implements, hatchets and hammers, cleavers and knives, they begin chanting a prayer mantra. As Karma wonders what is happening, the Reverend Mother Dorje shuffles toward him. Her eyes are red. The oracle was a good man, Dorje says. In life, everything he did, he did for others, and so will it be in death. She pauses a moment, lowering her voice so that only he can hear it. It may be uncomfortable for you to watch this, Karma. Karma gives her a questioning look. Unclear of what she means. This will be a sky burial, Dorje explains. To accrue to our dead even greater karma. As a final act of compassion for the living, they will be rendered into carrion for the birds and the beasts. Karma blinks. His eyes flicker back to the monks who have begun to unload the bodies from the cart, chanting as they work. Off to the side, The Ganduk outlaws are watching, squatting and eating figs in the forest shade. Suddenly, he understands what is about to happen. In his village, they burn the deceased. The ground too rocky to bury the dead deep enough to protect against excavation by animals. Out here, the monks have another solution. They let the animals feed from them. The Reverend Mother was saying that, by acts of selflessness through one's life, the giving of one's own flesh in the end, a person can earn a higher rebirth, a belief in reincarnation. But karma cannot help but wonder, what good will that do in facing the end of the world? Without the earth, no one will be reborn. It doesn't all have to end, the Reverend Mother says, as if anticipating the question. The six sons were not real sons after all, only weapons. Powerful weapons, to be sure, but weapons all the same. Men wield weapons, which means men can lay them down. The prophecy may predict the end of the world from the seventh sun, but even it provides a way to change the future if we can find the lama. The pilgrims now approach the bodies with the tools of excarnation. Karma stifles a shudder. I'll be all right he says. If the Ganduk are to believe that he is one of the monks, he will stay. Very well, Dorje nods. She covers her head with a fold of her robe and then leaves him to go to the charnel site. The monks begin a prayer, ringing a bell as they speak words that Karma understands to be instructions for the deceased's travel to a place in the other world. When they undress the bodies, Karma averts his eyes, but he cannot avoid the sounds, the clink of the butcher knife on rock, the sawing of tendons and pounding of bones, the weeping of the pilgrim monks. Like dogs summoned by the sound of the pan, the winged visages of the Himalayan raptors soon materialize, their shadows circling on the ground. When the monks begin to cast the first bits of flesh, they descend, hopping and pecking The beaks of the great vultures strike the blood-soaked rock, joining the tapping and scraping. In the growing humidity, the air soon fills with the odor of meat and butchery. It is not until the feeding turns into a swarm that the monks take their leave. In a daze, Karma retreats to the forest, going until he can no longer hear the squawking of their gullets and tapping of their beaks. Karma stops at a downed tree, seating himself on its fallen trunk, head in his hands, as if trying to squeeze the images and sounds from his mind. A few moments later, the Reverend Mother Dorje comes through the trees. She sees him and gestures to the spot beside him. May I? Karma rises to offer the seat. There's plenty of room for them both, so he sits again with her. All is impermanent. Nothing lasts, Dorje says after a moment. I know this. Believing there would be a reincarnation to look forward to, that we might one day reach the final enlightenment together, that was enough. But now all is like a dry well, the world a barren womb. Her eyes are wet as she stares into the woods. For years I walked by the Oracle's side, following him in search of the Lama Child who would one day come to save our dead and rejoin our worlds again before the coming of the seventh sun. Now he is gone, and I am to take his place. But he was the one with the vision. I was just the analyst, content to record the journey and study the past. But all the books are gone. The past before the time of the suns is an almost hundred-year-old mystery. While the future is an even murkier miasma, we are in a limbo of ignorance, and I fear that I will not have the gift of his sight. The monks will look to me, but I see nothing. while I hear nothing, Karma thinks, and he finds that he can sympathize with her. Two people expected to lead, neither knows the way. The two of them sit in silence. Dorje wipes back the white hair from her brow and tears from her eyes at the same time. Listen to me, a rambling old woman. You spill your deepest secrets to a stranger, but never confide in the ones who are the closest, until it's too late. I thought it could help my village, Karma says suddenly. If I joined the patrollers, it's the only reason I did. But it's only made things worse. Now, I have to go back because I made a promise, even though I still haven't accomplished what I set out to do. Dorje nods. Don't worry, I intend to keep my promise too, when I said I would repay a kindness for a kindness. We'll see to it that you have the means to get to where you need to go. But say nothing to the Chushiganduk, they can be suspicious. Footsteps approach from the forest, and a flustered monk comes through the trees, panting as he addresses the Reverend Mother. He looks panicked. Something's happened, Reverend Mother. The Ganduk are changing course. They're ordering us to go to their Dzong instead. Dorje frowns, rising. Their Dzong? But they agreed to help us search the borderlands. This is where the Oracle said we would find the Lama Child. It's what we paid them for. We said nothing about going to their fortress. The monk nods. I told them, but the Sir Khan says the circumstances have changed. With the border bandits and the minister's army both about, he said he's not risking his neck for nothing. Dorje shakes her head with incredulity. What is it that he wants? We were just robbed. There's no more money. They agreed to help us with our pilgrimage. The monk looks as helpless as he sounds. Not anymore. He says the agreement was with the oracle. Now that the oracle is dead, the pilgrimage is over. The sun has disappeared behind the trees and the clouds. A gray wind has moved in. It swells, shaking the boughs of the cotton trees. Downy flecks float down to the charnel ground, which is wet with gristle and blood. Sir Kang, Dorje calls out as she crosses into the opening. We'd better discuss the plan of our course now. In the Oracle's last vision, he saw the child traveling westward through the borderlands. We know where we must look next. Really, Sir Kong shoots back. Is that the same vision in which he failed to see the slaughter of his own people by border brigands? Dorje looks stung. Take my word for it, Sir Kong goes on. When I tell you that you're lucky to be alive, You belong behind the safety of our fortress walls, with the other refugees not wandering through bandit country. We are not refugees, Dorje says. We are monks of the Oracle. Our pilgrimage is to find the Lama Child, not shelter. But if it's bandits you fear, then by all means, go. We will manage on our own if we must. The change in Sir Kong is immediate. If you mean to imply cowardice, Sir Kong answers darkly. I assure you, Reverend Mother, that you will not find another in the four rivers and six ranges who has shed more banded blood than I. It may be my brother who is the leader of the Kanduk outlaws, but it's the name of Sir Kong they know and fear. There is something dangerous in his voice. Something that makes everyone go still. Furthermore, Sir Kong adds, it's not just the border bandits you may encounter out here. The warlord Altan Khan has been calling together the clans to join his rebel force, and they're itching for a fight. And perhaps most troubling of all, the Eastern Army has been spotted gathering to the borderlands. Hundreds, if not thousands of them. Rumor has it that the minister himself is leading them, you saw the scouts, they're coming. Karma stiffens, suddenly feeling conspicuous as he realizes that Sir Kong is referring to his patroller escort. But Dorje does not give him away. Instead, she keeps her eyes fixed ahead before apparently relenting. It is not my intention to put anyone in danger unnecessarily. She sighs, lowering her head in a short nod. We will do as you say, for now. When things clear, we'll resume the search for the lama. Good, Sir Kong snaps, because you don't have much of a choice anyway. Now get your people ready. He turns without another word, striding off. Alone, the monks speak among themselves in hushed tones. They glance at karma. Dorje whispers a few words, then makes a discreet motion of her hand. Come quickly now, she says to him. Karma does as he is told, following her back into the forest, through the cotton trees, into the thick of the evergreens, out of sight of the rest of the caravan. She stops to scan the woods. Karma sees what she is looking for, a mule, tied to a low bough of a tree. Someone has hidden it here. This was the oracles, Dorje says. I had them separated from the others when the outlaws were not looking. She slips off the tie and holds it out to Karma. I trust it should get you wherever it is you must go. Reverend Mother, Karma says astonished. How can I take this? Where the oracle is, he has no need for it any longer, Dorje says. I assure you, it's quite all right. She puts the reins in his hand. Take it and go, before they find us. Bowing, Karma accepts the reins. He climbs the stirrup. The minister's horse was taller, more valuable, its saddle of finer craftsmanship, but it is on this animal that he feels more grateful. Good luck, patroller. Karma lingers a moment. What the outlaw, Sir Kung said uh, about the minister's army? He pauses. He's right. Hanumantha is planning something. The soldiers are coming. You should take your people as far away as you can. Dorje studies him, her eyes intent under the gray wisps of hair. Where we're going, no army will be able to reach us. But first, we find the child. And then, indeed, we shall leave, far away from here. She is silent for a moment, as if considering this. Until then, perhaps fate will see our paths cross again. There is something about the way she says this, and the words, that fills Karma with a sudden sense of having been in this moment before. Like he felt when the minister came to him, a feeling of inevitability. You too. Someone's voice calls from behind them. What are you doing? A young Ganduk outlaw, ponytailed and no older than Karma himself, comes out from the trees. Reverend Mother. He bows when he realizes it is the nun. Can I help you with something? Seeing him, Dorje turns back to the mule, making a feint of rifling through the saddlebags. We were looking for some thousand leaf to make a poultice for the wounded. She says, bluffing. Karma thinks he saw some growing at the edge of the forest. For a moment, it seems that the young outlaw will question them further. But then he replies, white blossoms? You know plants? Dorje says, making an expression of surprise. I could use your help if so. Some, the young outlaw looks proud. Dorje and Karma exchange a discreet glance. Well. In that case, she starts back toward the clearing. Where did you see the herb? She pivots, indicating for the ganduk to follow. She feigns, calling over her shoulder, don't be too long, Karma, before turning her attention back to the young ganduk. Now, since you're so observant, did you happen to also notice any creeping rootstock? Karma watches them, listens to their voices fading in the woods. As soon as they're out of sight, he nudges the mule away, not too fast, in case his movements are being observed by anyone else. A few yards away, he throws another look over his shoulder. No one is following, no one standing in his way. Karma turns face forward, preparing to spur the mule ahead until nagging words fill his mind, the prophecy of the seventh sun creeping and unbidden. But gather to the mount and the seeing stone, that the Lama may reveal yet a future unknown. The Reverend Mother said that they were on a pilgrimage to find the Lama child, and then after that to the mountain, if they could find it. The mountain, the Lama. It could have been fate. A lone finch lands suddenly on the path before him, pecking on the ground. Karma stares at the bird. No, the end of the world is their fate, impossible to change, except. By some miracle. Perhaps the monks will find the Lama and stop the seventh son. But his mother and the village are in danger from Hanumantha's men at this very moment. He kicks his feet. The finch startles off into flight. That's it then. Home, mother, Lapsang,
0: the village. Then father.
1: But as he rides east toward the valley, a creeping feeling remains a feeling not so much of uncertainty in his direction but doubt suddenly about what lies ahead a question of what he can even do to change his village's fate if anything at all 12 the rebels karma's way meanders the tracks from the previous night all but indiscernible on the granite ledge forest ledge forest More ledge. The Ganduk outlaws took this path intentionally, their footprints harder to follow for anyone who might be tracking them. But now, as Carmen tries to recreate their route, the trail becomes unclear. He was unconscious for only a few hours in the cart, but nothing about his surroundings is familiar from last night. In the tedium of searching the terrain, he plays out in his mind the plan for his return to the village. To enter undetected will be one thing. He's fairly certain he can slip in if it's dark. He knows the village well enough. He will go to his mother to relay all he has discovered about Lobsang's abduction, then to his uncle's house to tell them too. But then what? How would they warn the entire village? And once they did, what would they do? Fight the patroller guards? Or would they try to escape undetected? Even if they all got away, where would they go? There was nowhere to hide in the valley. They would be found. The elders will know. All I need is to get home. Uncle Ugen, the shaman, the other clan heads, they will decide what to do. But then he has another thought. What if, by returning, he is putting his people in greater danger? Right now, their captors are maintaining the charade of being the village's caretakers, helping them, protecting them from bandits. Eventually, when the captain's party fails to show up to meet the rest of the army, they will surmise what happened, that there was an attack. And for all they know, Karma was killed with the others. Perhaps that is best. Perhaps then the patrollers will leave the village. If I simply disappear, there no longer will be a need to hold the villagers as hostages. The mule's gait slows as if worn out by being strained in two directions. The clouds having cleared, the sun now beats down, a harsh glare on the granite. The heat is rising, heightening the sense in karma that indeed he is lost. He needs to stop somewhere, to let the mule rest, to give himself the chance to gather his thoughts. At the next grove, he dismounts. Dragonflies dart along barbary shrubs, sunlight glaring on their wings. The mule noses Karma, its dark, clouded eyes gazing into his own. It is no colt, but still strong, still alert. How many miles it must have seen in its years, a life of wandering with the monks of the oracle. Karma takes the mule by the lead, entering the shaded wood. There is visible evidence of the quakes here. At one edge of the trees is a break in the earth, revealing a shattered rock ledge below as if a giant hammer had broken off a chunk of the land, exposing its rocky insides. The result is a steep drop, though not enough to kill someone in a fall. Karma takes his rest beneath a tall cedar shade. The trees around pulse with the drone of cicadas. Strange to hear them this early, harbinger of frost so soon. Then again, nothing is usual in the earth anymore. Between the growing quakes and violent storms, the strange skies and ghost winds at night, nothing is as it once was. Fishing through the saddlebags, he finds some millet, but what he craves is water. He takes the food and rests against the trunk of the tree. Overhead, high boughs lean close together, a gap in the canopy exposing a window of white clouds. The sight of this jogs karma's memory of seeing a narrow strip of sky from last night. Perhaps this is where they passed. But when he looks at the ground, he sees only some fox and martin droppings, none of the signs of foot traffic he would expect had they come this way. Lost already. Karma peels off the upper garment of his robe from his sleeves down to his waist, letting the monk's cloak hang over his belt. He has been anxious to make his way back to the village. Now... He's not even sure where he's going. The mule nibbles at the grass, teeth clacking as it chews. Its dark eyes continue gazing at him, as if waiting to know what they are to do next. Your guess is as good as mine, Karma mumbles. He shuts his eyes to think, allowing the shade to cool his brow, trying to picture the trail from the night before. But all that comes to him are images of the sky burial. The monks spared no part of the bodies. To turn the unclean into the meritorious, they even smashed the bones, rolling up the broken fragments with bits of meat for the vultures to feed on. There was to be nothing left behind but the blood that soaked the earth. A shaking of leaves rustles from his periphery. A twig snaps. Karma's eyes jerk open. The hairs on his neck prickle. Two faces peek out from behind a bush. It takes only a moment for Karma to recognize them. Odsel and Janang, the two patroller brothers who were left behind to guard the packhorses. Mother's corpse, Janang swears, rising from a crouch. It is him. Before Karma can react, the brothers spring from the undergrowth. They reach him before he can get up, pinning him to the ground with the weight of their patroller armor, pieces of leaves and forest debris stuck to the chainmail. Karma gasps both stunned by the blow and upset that he forgot about the brothers. Made to stay back, the pair didn't join the raid and survived the ambush. The brothers stare at him with similar disbelief, their ruddy faces dirty and sweat-streaked. Their eyes go from the mule to Karma's monk clothing. Why are you dressed that way? Junang demands. Where have you been? A bitter taste of bile rises in Karma's throat. An anger returning once more at the patrollers for what they did to Lobsang and again at himself for being so careless. Let me up, he grits through his teeth. Otsel gives his brother a nudge and Jonang relents, only a little, allowing him to breathe. All right, Sherpa, start talking. As Karma catches his breath, he tries to collect himself. Stay calm, he tells himself. If he is to stand any chance of getting out of this, he will have to keep his wits. There was an ambush. Yes, we know, Odsel harries him, but who was it, and where did they take you? They were border bandits, Karma answers. Instinct tells him not to mention the Ganduk outlaws. The younger brother lets out a hiss of air. I knew it, Jonang says. It was an idiotic thing, the captain riding out like that with no weapons or armor. Otzel's eyes narrow on Karma. Yes, but that doesn't explain what happened to you, Sherpa. How did you get away, and why are you dressed like one of the monks? I was injured, Karma replies. He points to the area on his head where he was struck by the bandit chieftain, Dragpa. The pilgrim monks helped me, but then we went our separate ways. The brothers eye the physical evidence of the bruise. Apparently satisfied, Odzil gestures to Junang. Let him up. They step back, giving him space to get to his feet. Odzil dusts the front of Karma's robe where his knee was embedded in his chest. He glances around the forest. Sorry about that, comrade. Can't be too careful, you know? The borderlands teeming with spies and rebel fighters as they are. No hard feelings, right? He retrieves something from his belt. Karma recognizes the silver scabbard of the knife that allegedly came from his father. See, odzel says. We found this, along with the captain and the others, but not you. That's how we realized you were probably still alive. He pauses a moment before handing it to him. The scabbard was bent, took a few hits with a the rock. They eye him as if watching to see what he will do. Slowly, Karma takes the knife. The thought crosses his mind to turn it against the brothers, but he knows that he's no match for them. Otzel nods. You must be hungry and thirsty. We still have the pack horses, at least. How about something to eat? He takes his brother aside. The two of them confer quietly. Jonang's eyes flicking to Karma as they talk. Without a further word, Jonang disappears into the woods, presumably to fetch the horses. Otzel comes back to Karma moving in slow, casual strides. My brother is right, for once, he says with an exaggerated chuckle. It was a mistake, the captain sending the men out without weapons like that. He lets a moment pass between them in silence. But it was an order, and as far as things go in the Eastern Army, you do not disobey orders. He stops abruptly, just like what they asked us to do at your village. Karma blinks. You know what I'm talking about, Otzel says. The raid. Kidnapping the boy, your cousin. You saw the necklace, didn't you? Again, my idiot brother's fault, his idea to keep the plunder. The words come matter of factly, divulging what Karma indeed discovered already, but is now afraid to hear him say, wondering what it means that they have dispensed with the facade. You see, it was the Lord Minister Honamantha's plan to scare your village to motivate you to help him find the stone. Karma's insides twist, the same feeling of nausea coming back to him as the night he discovered Lopsong's belongings in the packs. Otzel raises his hands in a sign of blamelessness. I understand how you feel. Janang and I, we were only following orders, but I swear to you, we didn't want to hurt the boy. Just like we don't want to hurt you now either. The sickening feeling grows, but so does the anger. First his cousin, now they're threatening him. What is it that you want? Karma manages in reply. Otzel glances at Karma's mule and then out across the forest. I think that maybe you're thinking, I need to warn them, I need to go home. But do you remember what I told you? You need to forget about home. Forget about them. Because now that you know what the minister is capable of, You can never go back, not ever, for their good as much as yours. Karma stares at him, anger replaced by a sinking sense of helplessness. Right now, they will assume that we're all dead, Odsel continues to explain. And that's a good thing for you and your village. Do you see what I'm trying to tell you? We're free now. You too. We can choose where we go. We could stay in the borderlands if we wanted to. Or if, say, we choose to go to the mountain, we can do it. He pauses now. If we want to get the stone for ourselves, as powerful as they say it is, there's nothing to stop us. Now Karma understands. It is a seeing stone the brothers want. Whatever they think it could do for them, they want to use him to obtain it. Odzil becomes more animated. We could use it. He pounds a fist into his hand, My brother and I, we can help you. Karma remained silent. He agreed to the expedition because he believed that he could save his village and that he might somehow see his father again. But all at once now, he sees how naive he was. How little he knew before embarking on this, about the mountain, about how his father and his travel companion had found it by following the sound of phantom Sherpa horns. How little he knows now still except for one thing. He knows he will never again trust the patrollers. Otzel's conspiratorial demeanor is suddenly interrupted by a thrashing of footsteps, Jonang bounding through the trees. He has neither the pack horses nor the supplies with him. Armed riders, Jonang sputters. Approaching. Otzel's face sharpens. Border bandits? One of ours? Jonang's eyes are wide. He shakes his head. It's a caravan. Rebel fighters, maybe? It looks like they have prisoners with them. Otzel tilts his ear toward the sound of their approach. He frowns. Come on, he says, reaching for Karma's arm. We have to get out of sight. Together, they bustle through the trees, heading toward the break in the earth and the rock ledge Karma found earlier. They find cover behind a toppled tree, its roots half buried, half exposed to the sky. They're over there, Jonang whispers, pointing. Peering down the winding approach, they see a column of horsemen advancing, ascending the rise, trailed by a train of tethered bodies. Must be one of the Khan's prisoner caravans, Odzil says grimly. Mother's corpse, Jonah curses. Keep quiet, Odzil hisses. Stay down, they'll pass us by soon, no need to panic. Silently, they watch the approaching party. Karma is rigid. Not with fear, but with anticipation at the opportunity that is upon him, that he knows he can now take. The brothers are preoccupied. Odsel's back to him, Junong's as well. The fall from the ledge is not lethal, only a drop down a wooded slope, but perhaps just enough to let him get away. Time to act. Another moment, and it may be too late. Suddenly, Odsel glances back at him, as if catching wind of his thoughts. His eyes flash. Now! Karma shoves the brothers as hard as he can. Atsu lets out a grunt. At first, it seems as if the shove has no effect other than to stun him. But then his arms wheel, his body leans. Jonang too teeters. Karma doesn't wait to see what happens. He needs only to get away. He turns now, bursting into a sprint. He hears shouting but does not linger. You! the Younger brother's voice rings out. Come back! Karma does not stop. Instead, lengthening his stride, he vaults over rock and root. The mule sees him and sallies forward, trotting by his side. The edge of the forest beckons, but he can hear the thrash of footfalls nearing in pursuit. He darts in and out between trees, ducking their limbs. A clearing appears, a drop down a hill. He feels a hand clapping onto his back so fast and spares a moment of surprise at how quickly they have caught up to him. A sharp push, his body totters, his balance tips. He goes into a dive, down the slope, down the hill. He tumbles to the bottom, rolling to a stop. The mule is no longer beside him. Open sky now in place of the forest canopy. Footsteps pound. Then he sees the reddened face of Janang. The brother grasps him, clenching him by the collar. You little... He drives a punch into Karma's gut. Karma doubles over but stays on his feet and sees Janang raising his fist again. Trying to pull one over on us? Another blow rams into him, this time into his side. Again, Karma groans, dropping to the ground. He tries to stumble away, but he can hear Jonang following. Odsel! Jonang calls out. I got him! I got the little Sherpa bastard! Now you're gonna pay! Jonang's voice tapers off suddenly. His steps freeze. From the corner of his eye, Karma sees a train of riders filter into view. Hooves clomp, chains clink. The caravan they observed from above now comes to a stop, arrayed before them. Janang, clad in his patroller's armor for all to see, begins to make a startled retreat until finally stopping, realizing he has nowhere to go. His hand hovers by his sword, but then seems to falter. He raises both arms in surrender instead. Karma feels a wave of relief, but as he glances back to the caravan of horsemen, the feeling quickly fades. Behind the column of riders, he glimpses a trail of fettered figures shuffling along a cable of chains and ropes. Prisoners. And just like that, Karma knows he is never
0: going home again.
1: Part Two He made do with what little he could get and never hoped for anything finer, unaware that in the lining of his robe, he had a priceless jewel. The Lotus Sutra, 1st Century CE. 13. The Grotto The cry of cicadas is like the sound of metal across a whetstone. Shriek, shriek, shriek. It repeats, piercing karma's ears, drowning everything out. Blindfolded, hands bound, he sits on the ground waiting. He can tell it is nighttime, he can feel it in the blindness, in the sweat-dampened chill of his body. His feet are blistered from the march. The feeling, a dull pain now that they have stopped moving. Voices approach, men speaking in unfamiliar languages. Hands take hold and yank him to his feet. A sharp tug, and the blindfold tears away to a dusky blur, shapes and silhouettes, the hint of a firelit village. Blinking. Karma's eyes come into focus. A shove from behind propels him forward. Move. A voice barks at him. Karma glimpses other captives, similarly bound, shuffling together like a stock of wrangled animals. There's no sign of either brother that he can immediately see, the line moving quickly. The trees are black against the darkened sky, the surroundings a mass of shadows. Men stride about, dressed in tunics of the type that he had seen on traders, but these men are armed and they shout and strike the prisoners, herding them toward the flickering lights. Out of the forests, smoky torches reveal the outline of ramshackle dwellings and rambling shanties. Dogs with sunken rib cages roam about. Through lightless doorways, mud-faced figures peer, eyes like vacant sockets. Beside one of the hovels, A goitered old man moves his bowels in a tumble of weeds, only to scamper away when he sees the train of prisoners coming as the dogs rush in to consume the excrement. The air stews with the filth. But the train of prisoners carries on, passing the dwellings and heading toward a massive hill. Its hump breaches the sky like an eclipsed moon, crowned by a halo of broken stars. Torches light a path around the landmark, oily fissures spewing smoke from their flames into the night. As they approach, Karma hears a chorus of tapping, the clink of metal on stone. The noise grows louder as they round the bend, coming to a gaping pit in the side of the hill. In the reddish firelight, he sees an army of bodies moving, clinking and scraping, clanging and hammering. A string of figures makes a human chain, Men shoulder baskets of rock up an open-cut mine. At the top, hunchbacked women rinse the broken ore in wooden troughs. The runoff of sediment washes back down to the writhing laborers in a river of sludge, while guards keep watch. Karma tenses as they near the entrance to the mine, thinking that they are to join them. But they continue on to the great hill, to an opening in the rocky side. It is a cave, Karma realizes. He has seen crevices in the rocks of the valley calm before, but nothing of this size, and he surmises that they must be far west now, where the terrain is higher and rockier, the remnants of the broken range. Several guards stand watch at the mouth. An orange glow spills from the gaping cavern, like a great tongue lapping at their approach. Voices reverberate within, distorted. Their captors usher them inside. The air is immediately dense. The voices become louder, the passage descending quickly into a cavernous arena. A crowd swarms a stone pit, reminding Karma of an underground nest of termites. In the light of smoky torches, he can make out different faces Mongols and Pamiris, Mustangs and Magars, Bahiris and Hans, and tribes he cannot recognize. They fill the stone arena, their shouts thundering off the walls. They jeer and spit as the guards jostle the prisoners downstairs that are sticky with sputum. Karma chokes on the air, as humid as an outhouse and reeking of sweat. Rancid butter offerings cake over rocks of graven deities. To Karma's horror, at the bottom of the arena, a trio of dogs, woolly mastiffs of massive size, strains against chains, barking and snarling, lunging at the center of a pit where two men stand, trembling, bloodied and naked. This is a ring, Karma realizes, a fighting pit. He freezes then, suddenly recognizing the pair, Atsal and Jonang. Keep moving, A guard growls in his ear. Karma swivels to see a face tattooed with deer antlers, horns branching out over each cheek. The guard swings the butt end of his spear at Karma's leg. I said move! Karma staggers into the prisoner in front of him, the two of them tumbling into the crowd. The other prisoner wrenches away, flashing Karma a warning glare. To Karma's surprise, he sees that it is a girl, likely no more than a couple of years older than he is. People laugh, pawing at them. The guard shoves Karma and the girl back in line. Karma staggers on, a feeling of terror growing. The line of prisoners reaches the bottom of the stairs they are herded into a holding pen of bamboo poles. The gate claps shut, Karma the last in, the door pressing him into a crowd of bodies. They push and scuffle, panicking. From behind the bars, Karma peers out at the two brothers. Atsul and Jonang stand facing the crowd like prisoners facing an executioner. Naked, their patroller armor arrayed on the ground in display, the crowd crows, Though their shouts are a mix of languages and dialects, karma understands they are shouting for blood. At the front of the spectators, from a seat of prominence weathered out on the stone steps, a man rises. Like the guards, he is dressed in a long, fur-trimmed tunic and peaked hat. His face, too, is covered with the same antler tattoos, but his are even more elaborate, multiple branches, forking out like the points of a large buck. Around his neck is a necklace of bone fragments. It reminds karma of the one the village shaman would wear, like a man of medicine or magic. The man holds up his hand. The shouting subsides. These patrollers, the man proclaims, pointing to the brothers, were found not in the territories but here, in the borderlands. Scouts, undoubtedly, for those who say the Eastern Army isn't coming... Remember that every stick comes from a tree. Here is your proof. The shouting of the crowd turns into a roar of booing. The brothers stare haggardly back in silence, as if beaten and cowed beyond speech. The man turns back to the crowd. It is time, comrades, to put aside each and every petty difference in the face of a common peril, a much more dangerous evil. He begins to pace as he continues to address the people. When the six sons destroyed their country, the predecessors of the Eastern Army fled here to the safety of the Tibetan highlands. Your great-grandparents accepted them. They had no choice. That was three generations ago. Now, the mountains of the Himalayas have crumbled away, and the danger is no longer from outside, but within. The Eastern Army is still here, grown in power, seizing more and more of the four rivers and six ranges, taking more control. Today, they have been sighted in the borderlands. Not just these scouts, but vast gatherings of troops right at our doorstep. More hisses rise from the crowd at the mention of the minister's army. The man nods. Some may say perhaps we should join them, They say we should do like the border bandits, those thugs, and become Hunamanta's ally. He stops his pacing. Let me disabuse you of that folly, should you think that it will save your skin. Hunamanta's loyalists are dispensable like arrows in a quiver. The minister is all too happy to use the border bandits to scare away the refugees who try to leave his territories or to harass his enemies but what do you think he will do to them once he gets what he wants? He will obliterate them, just like he will obliterate anyone else who can threaten his power. For let there be no mistake about it, what he wants is absolute power. The booing swells, the man's eyes glint as he pauses on the brink of some even more damnatory reveal. And this is the reason, I have heard, that he is in the Borderlands. It is because he believes that the child Lama is here, and I believe he is right. Murmurs of curiosity ripple through the crowd. It is a fool who laughs at prophecy. The monks were right about the six sons. They will be right about the Lama too. This child will control the future, and that is why we must work together. Only together will we be able to search the land. Only together will we be able to find the child before the minister can. Slowly, heads nod, agreement growing, spreading throughout the audience. Hanumantha knows that if you are divided, warlord against warlord, tribe against tribe, band against band, you will be easy to overcome as we were in my own land. We stood no chance. The only way to win is to win together, and that is why I propose an alliance of every clan, every tribe, every gang, every outlaw band. A united rebel army. The cave booms with cheers. They echo through the chamber, multiplying on the force of their own reverberations. The man raises his hand, more to declare now that he has their agreement. The first order of business eradicating all traitors and spies from our midst. They're either with us or they're against us. He turns toward the pair of brothers. Instead of resisting the minister, you joined his army, he says. Instead of joining the rebel movement, you became patrollers. You are traitors to your own people, and now you deserve a traitor's death. He gives a flick of his hand. The three hulking mastiffs are released. The dogs charge, lunging at their victims. Odsel and Janang try to shield themselves to cover their naked genitals to turn their bodies away. But it is in vain. The ground is soon slick with their blood and they lose their balance. The teeth of the mastiffs latch on. The brothers go down, a pile of snapping jaws and clawing paws over flailing limbs. Karma turns his eyes away. But he cannot shut out the sounds the hungry snarls, the mauling paws, and the screams, until mercifully they are drowned out by the lusty roar of the crowd in the grotto. A chant begins, repeating what appears to be the man's name over and over. Al-tan, 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 and then Khan, Khan, Khan. The dogs are subdued, the carcasses dragged away before their hunger can be satiated. The Khan swivels now toward the bamboo cage, gesturing to the prisoners inside. Even many of the so-called refugees are the minister's spies in disguise. Bring out the next two for interrogation. The crowd bursts into wild cheers once more. The guards stride toward the pen and fling open the door. Karma tries to back away, but being the last one into the cage, he is the closest and they seize him. He stumbles, tripping as they drag him toward the pit. Although they have strewn chalk to soak up the blood, his feet still slide on the rock. When the crowd sees him, they begin to laugh, pointing and taunting. It is his clothing, Karma realizes, the maroon robe. They think he is a monk. The guards drag out a second prisoner. Now the crowd is leering, heckling. With a glance, Karma sees that it is the girl with whom he collided on the stairs. She struggles, raging and kicking. Unlike Karma, it takes several guards to restrain her, one man for each of her limbs. They pick her up, the braid of her long hair dragging on the chalk as they carry her to the pit. She is strong, and their movements are strained. The girl's eyes meet Karma's. While he is panicked and fearful, her gaze is dark, more angry than afraid. Dirt and grime do little to cover the expression of contempt on her face. The same guard that struck Karma with a spear now whispers into Altan Khan's ear. Fight, make them fight, the crowd chants. The Khan holds up a hand as he takes a moment to study Karma. You, monk, you were seen running from the pair of patrollers, he says. Why? Karma's heart is pounding. He can hardly breathe under the smokiness of the torches, the fresh smell of blood the thronging of the crowd. They ambushed me, Karma stammers, the reply true enough that he does not have to think. A monk traveling alone in the borderlands, Alton counters, a risky proposition. Karma is too close to death. He must keep talking. They are of the belief that he is a monk and this belief could be his best chance of survival. My Companions were killed by bandits while we were looking for the llama child, he says, forming his reply more quickly this time, having just heard the Khan's words. The remark elicits haws of laughter from the crowd, but Alton jerks his hand up in a command of silence. So you're telling me that you're a monk of the Oracle? Alton's voice registers mocking skepticism, but his eyes peak with interest. Karma pauses, suddenly unsure of himself. But he has no choice. He must continue the pretense. Yes, he swallows. They they killed the oracle, and then they took our texts. There was a map. Alton's face changes, suddenly dead serious as he leans forward. A map, you say? Alton says. Yes. The guard with a spear jabs Karma in the ribs. Yes, Khan, he barks. Come now, Batar, the Khan reproves the guard. That's no way to treat a monk. Didn't you hear him? He's on the pilgrimage, just the same as us. He looks back to Karma appraisingly. But the borderlands are vast and dangerous. How did you all ever hope to find the child without any help? Karma winces from the pain to his ribs. He knows he has to be careful, that he is being tested but he is overwhelmed. The Chushigandruk outlaws, he mumbles before he can think it through. They were going to be our escorts. Now it is the Khan's turn to pause. Indeed, he says. This is not going well, Karma thinks. Do they know I'm lying? From the look on the Khan's face, he cannot tell. Thinking to bolster the authenticity of his claim, Karma quickly adds One of them is called Sir Kang, but it is his brother who is the leader. We were traveling to their fortress uh, somewhere on the river. As soon as he says it, he knows he has made a misstep, though how or why he does not exactly know. Inexplicably, he feels the gaze of the prisoner girl burn into him like a pair of hot pincers. More murmurs ripple through the crowd. The brow of Alten Khan. Crooks up in a curious expression. Karma sees that he has convinced him, but at what cost? It feels like a trap has been sprung. Too late now. The Chushi Ganduk outlaws, the Khan repeats. How fortuitous, as we seek them as well, to join our confederacy. They would be a tremendous help to us in our fight against the Eastern Army, as would you, monk, in our search for the Lama. That is it. The gambit has paid off. Alton nods at the crowd, then the guard. You see, fortune is on our side. Take this one to the cells, Batar. It would seem that fate has other plans than the mines for the young monk. The crowd cheers as the guard with the spear signals to two other guards, who take Karma by the arms and march him to the stairs. As Karma passes the girl, again his eyes meet hers again, a look of anger. But there is something else this time, a feeling of loss and longing of something in common. Perhaps it is just pity, he thinks, or in his case, maybe it is guilt, knowing that he has been spared while worse awaits her. The sensation washes over him with such force that he cannot ignore it, and his eyes search hers, hoping for some clue but the look she returns is only one of fury and disgust. As if to say, as he is led up the stairs and away from the burning torches and rank air of the grotto, that he has made a terrible mistake. 14, the prisoner. The prisoner's cells are in a cave a short distance from the grotto. From inside, Karma can still hear the crowd. The hiss and sigh of their cheers, the piercing of the prisoner's screams, the barks of the guards' voices. I can't be here. I shouldn't be here. In the light of a single waning torch on the wall, he tries to examine the bamboo posts of his cell. They are thick, lashed together with fibers, reinforced with hardened tar. If he had his knife, perhaps he could cut his way through, but someone has taken it from him. At the door, an iron padlock secures a chain fastened around the bars. As much as he tries to pry it loose, it does not budge. His shadows flicker in the adjoining pen like another prisoner stalking his movements. My uncle warned me. Why did I think I would succeed? Me, the boy with no future. The light from the torch begins to sputter. It snuffs out, dousing the room in blackness. In the dark. The nearby shrieks of the prisoners seem louder, the cries of the rebel council lustier and more terrible. Karma cringes at each crescendo, his mind replaying the attack of the dogs as they mauled the brothers. His thoughts go to the prisoner girl, at the rage in her eyes as she watched him go. He begins to feel sick. Yellow light flickers at the cave's entrance. Voices approach. It is the same guard's. Karma backs away from his cell door. Torchlight fills the room. The guard Batar enters, wielding his spear and a torch, his two companions following. Behind them, a prisoner is led by rope. Her mouth is bloodied, some of it smeared on her cheek. But as she stumbles toward the adjoining cell, Karma recognizes her, the girl. Batar removes a key from around his neck, unlocking the door to the neighboring cell. Tie her down in here, he orders. Make sure it's tight. After all, she's quite the fighter, isn't she? His expression is leering. As one of the guards fight to hold her in place, the other leashes the rope from her wrists to a bamboo post on the far side of her cell. The second guard does not look like the others. He is darker complexioned and thinner, with no tattoos on his face. Come on, come on, hurry, Batar barks. As the rope is knotted, Batar hands one of them the torch while he stands over the girl, a lecherous grin growing on his face. He begins to loosen his belt. The girl's foot thrashes out suddenly, heel to the groin. Batar jounces backward, knocking out the torch in the other guard's hand. The light tumbles. The cave plunges momentarily into darkness. When it flutters back, they see Batar wrapped between the girl's legs his face purpling, his arms flailing. His two companions rush to his aid, trying to pry him loose from her chokehold. A kick sends them reeling into each other and crashing into the bars. The darker skin guard cups his nose. The other doubles over, grunting with pain. Batar scrambles away, streams of unintelligible profanity raging from his mouth. You rotten little wretch, he heaves. The darker-skinned guard spits out a chunk of red mucus onto the floor. My nose, he wails. I think she broke my nose. The girl starts forward on her feet but jerks back under the leash. The two guards quickly stumble out of the cell, leaving Batar alone within, still cursing. You think you're tough, don't you? Batar growls. A refugee, are you? I don't think so, fighting like that. Let it go, Batar. the other guard moans. Let's just leave her be. Like hell, Batar curses. Still, he hobbles from the cell, slamming the bar shut. This is not the end of it. He slaps the lock shut. Mark my words, we'll see just how tough you are. The three guards slink away, glaring at Karma as they pass, swearing all the things they will do to make her pay. Then once more, the cave plunges into darkness, the harsh voices of the guards fading away. For a moment, all is still, silent. In the dark, Karma can still make out little more than a shadowy bulk in the corner of the next cell. But as his eyes slowly adjust, he detects movement. Are you all right? He whispers. Am I all right? The girl spits back through the dark, Asks the coward and the traitor? Karma blinks, stung by the venom in her reply. He can hear her moving now, grunting and straining against the bamboo bars. I guess you think you're safe, don't you? She says, helping the Khan. Taking them to the Chushi Ganduk's hideout? I never... I heard you. The Zong on the river, giving up their names. Perhaps she was right. But he hadn't really told him anything, had he? He was only posturing, trying to buy time. Yet from her reaction, it is as if she has been personally wronged. I, I don't actually know anything. That much is clear. She cuts him off. You don't know anything. Not the consequences of what you told them, not what they're going to do. Karma is at a loss. I was just trying to avoid the dogs. And in that, you've succeeded. For now the girl says scornfully. What did you think? That they'll just let you go on with your pilgrimage when all is said and done? Do you have any idea who you're dealing with? That's the warlord Altan Khan. That's the rebel council. Karma swallows. She is right. Even more so when they discover that he can't tell them anything else they might want to know. You're right, he replies at last. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea. The girl says nothing else. Karma can hear her still moving about, her breaths heavy. What are you doing? Karma says. The girl stops moving. Listen. Her voice comes back at him. They're going to torture us for information, and when they have what they want, they're going to feed us to their mastiffs, just like those patrollers, do you understand? You may think you have a different fate coming, but I assure you that is not the case. We have to get out of here. If she is trying to scare him, it is working. How, he says. I have the key. At first, Karma doesn't know what she means. But then he remembers the key around Batar's neck. She must have taken it in their tussle when the cave went dark. With their bodies hurting and their egos hurting worse, they hadn't noticed. The problem is that I can't reach the door, she says. They've tied my hands. He hears her jerking on the rope. The bar is creaking. So, I'm going to have to throw the key to you. You will unlock your door. Then you'll come unlock mine and untie me. Karma's mind races. His heartbeat doubles like a drum in his chest. If they were discovered... Are you hearing me, Monk? He snaps out of it. Yes, he says. All right. Stand away from the bars she says. Listen for where the key lands. Karma does as he is told. He holds his breath and shuts his eyes to focus on the sound, even though in the dark he is already practically blind. Ready, he whispers. There's a moment of cringing as he imagines the key sailing through the air. What if it strikes one of the bars and they lose it? What if he can't hear it? The soft clink of something landing near him signals that the key has made it through. He lets out a sigh of relief. Do you have it? The girl hisses. Karma gropes the ground. He feels something, but it is just a pebble. Where is it? Where is it? Tell me, the girl insists. Not yet, Karma says. It's somewhere. I heard it. Hurry, she urges. They're going to come back. Where did it go? The cell feels suddenly huge. Crawling on all fours, he sweeps his hands across the floor. He wonders if the key bounced back into her own cell after all. I can't seem to... His hand brushes over something. His fingers close around it, scooping it up. A small object, thin, metallic. Found it, he says. I've got it. The girl's relief is audible. Now the door, she directs. Karma rushes to the door of his cell, feeling for the padlock. The key goes in. Yes. He tries to turn it, just as he saw the guards doing. It does not budge. At first, he panics, then thinks to reverse direction. This time, the key swivels. He begins turning it, faster, round and round, unscrewing the lock. The shackle slips, the chain slides. It clatters with its weight. Open, swings the door. Karma stumbles out. Quick! The girl calls. Karma steps through the dark, feeling his way to her cell now. He fiddles at the lock. In a moment, he has her door open too. Over here! He follows her voice, finding her hands. Her body is trembling, soaked from sweat. Untie my hands! The knot of rope might as well be a knot of wood. Karma presses, pushing and prying, but it does not move. Outside the cave, the swell of the crowd's cheering climaxes, startling them both. Another prisoner meeting their demise. Come on, the girl says. We're running out of time. Karma tries again, wincing as it pulls away on his fingernails. It is of no use. He has untied hitches his entire life as a herder, but in the dark, this one is impossible. What? The girl demands. Why are you stopping? I can't do it, Karma says. I can't see it and it's too tight. We'll need to cut it. She goes quiet. Karma swivels his head about as if to look around him, though he can see nothing. How long would it take to search the cave for a rock that was sharp enough? The girl pauses. The mine. What? There are tools in the mine, she says. Karma stares through the dark. The mine. That was the last place he wanted to go near. Those guards, those prisoners in chains, he would be seen and he would be caught. It would be mad to try. You have to, she says.
0: We have a deal.
1: Karma hesitates. All right, he replies finally. He can't stay here anyway. He turns to go. Wait, monk. Karma pauses, hopeful she has thought of some other solution. But there is only a nervous warning. Keep off the trails. Stay in the shadows. Karma swallows. And one more thing, she adds. Don't you even think of leaving me. Do you hear me? Or I'll. I'll scream so loud it'll raise an alarm. Karma nods as he heads for the door. Monk, she repeats. Do you hear me? Yes, he finally replies remembering that she can't see him in the dark. With breath held, he plunges now into the night, into the crisp, chill air. Past the shadow of the entrance, stars prick the sky. The hillside is dark, save the slant of torches over the landform. The noise of the crowd sharpens, and he crouches down behind an outcropping of rocks to study the clearing. No guards in sight. Across the way, he thinks he can make out the path toward the mines, He imagines he can hear the clinking of irons, the bark of commands. Keep off the trails. Stay in the shadows. For a moment, he considers going back to the cave to try the knot again, but he knows it will be useless. The solution is out there. Unless I just leave? The thought breezes through his mind, shocking in its seductiveness. By now the clouds have drifted, The gibbous moon casting a faint glow over a slow rise of hills in the distance. Every moment he is out here is a moment closer to getting caught. Karma turns his gaze from the horizon back toward the woods of the open cut mine, with its hunchbacked figures and black and silhouetted forms. He lingers. Another gush of the crowd issues forth from the grotto. He takes one last look at the hills toward freedom, then, silently, decisively, He turns the other way. Like an arrow from its bow, he shoots forward in the night, streaking toward the woods, toward the mine, the girl in the cave waiting behind.
0: Who is this woman? Will she be able to help Karma make it out alive? And if so, where will he go? With no one he can trust, his home now compromised, and the search for his father still an illusion, what will he do? Stay tuned because all things come to a head in the next episode. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrap. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, Listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors editors, and other bookworms in our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.